Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas in personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Mind Valley podcast. This episode is a speech that was delivered in Tallinn, Estonia, at Mind Valley University City Campus 2018. The speaker is a woman who has been invited on Oprah seven times because of not just how incredible, insightful, and beautiful her ideas are, but the fun, powerful way in which she conveys them. So I love putting her on stage, and her name is Shafali Sabari. She's the author of the book, Conscious Parenting. I really wanted to share Shafali's wisdom with you because she had such an incredible impact on me as a parent. I have two kids, Hayden, who is 11, and Eve, who is five. And this speech actually changed in a big way how I spent my evenings every single night with my children. So take a listen. And even if you aren't a parent, there's some wonderful wisdom here that will maybe help you understand yourself better and understand your relationship with your parents better. I'm Vishen Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. Firstly, thank you for coming all the way here. You kind of popularized the term conscious parenting, but what is that? What does it mean to be a conscious parent? It's to realize that to every moment in your life, but mostly to your parenting, you are bringing your unhealed wounds from your childhood. So the raising of the child becomes the eternal question. Which child are we raising? Are we raising the real child or the child within each one of us? Because all of us sitting here today and all watching are just children, just more adults, more ready to pay a bill or two. But really we are tantruming, screaming, crying, desperate in our children. So one of the things that you were quoted as saying, and this I believe was in the Washington Post, right? I found this paragraph interesting. Shafali Sabari's 10-year-old daughter has never seen a report card. They don't even talk about grades. If, as happened recently, her daughter brings home a test marked A, Shafali doesn't praise the achievement, even though she has plenty of high-status letters attached to her own name, including an MA and a PhD. Why? Why didn't I focus on the grade at why, that why young age? Matter? I mean, why, now why she's 15, I'm very obsessed with grades. Back then, <laughs> before I succumbed to mainstream, I stuck true for 10 to 12 years. But then, you know, you have to succumb at some point. You know, you have to be forgiven too. No, I'm just teasing, I'm just teasing. The philosophy behind not seeing grades is simple and it's apparent because our identity cannot be affixed to anything on the outside. So this culture, this educational system we so pedestalize is really such a front to the soul, really, because it quantifies and reduces the ineffable essence that exists within all of us into a letter and a number and makes our children obsessed with the outcome. All the things that you don't do on a spiritual path to discovering soul. So it's anti-soul, it's anti-bliss, it's anti-destiny and anti-manifestation. So we're throwing our children, and I've done it too, throwing our children into the world of so-called learning, but really they're dumbing down their illumination. They're dumbing down their light. That's what they're doing at school. They're dumbing. They're not learning. And they're certainly not transforming, certainly not evolving. 
So is there a certain age at which we should start caring about grades? I mean, after all, grades teach a kid that life isn't always going to be fair, that even in their careers, they're going to be competing with other people. And grades also, you might say, teach a kid discipline. They teach the kid the importance of hard work. Right. So, like I said, jokingly, but not so, that after a certain age, I too began to teach my daughter the value of being in this world as it is. So, if we can be clear as parents that this world is split, as I said earlier, into the ego, as we would call it, which is predicated on fear and lack and competition and separation, or you want to call it the finite world, or you want to call it the world of form, or the material world, or the dense world, whatever term you want to call it, this very thick with delusion world that we live in. And then there's this limitless potential that we all have, this thing that is unquantifiable, this thing that can never die, that is eternal, that never ever was created, or nor can it be destroyed. That thing needs to also coexist, if not superimpose this thing on earth, the form. So this formless essence needs to be understood as being the priority as a parent, as a human. So as long as we can hold the vision toward the formless potential within us all and see the interconnectedness of our oneness and hold that in the vision, then of course you have to teach your kid to have a shower, brush their teeth and get good grades and finish their homework. But it is the mere form of the way of the material world. It is not the reality. So as long as we understand what is conditioned and what is real, we'll be okay. And we'll teach our children the same. You live in the world of form, but don't be overwhelmed by it and don't belong to it and don't let it belong you. Keep your eye on the formless, on the essence. So when you do that, as a parent, you relinquish your anxiety, right? Because when the bad grade comes home, you don't see it for the form which is so limited and quantified. You see it for all that it is yet unmanifested, that is yet unknown. You see it for its potential to maybe allow your child to realize that that's not their passion. Maybe it's the way for your child to realize who they really need to be in the world and they need to discover that inner calling themselves. It is a conduit to the formless. But you see our fault or our limitation is that we've been so seduced by the minutiae, by the form-based details of this world, the imbroglios, the chaos, that we forget that the form, such as a bad grade, is only the conduit to the formless. But we instead get subjugated by it as if it's the be-all the eternal reality. This is the complete delusion we live in as parents. And who suffers? Not only does the child, but the parent. The parent is acutely anxious because they're living now tethered not only to their own obsession with form, but to the child's inability to handle the form and formless. And what you mean when you're talking about form is the rituals, the beliefs of the culturescape, of the world around us, the conditioning yes. from parents, teachers, yes. fathers, preachers, generations past on how we operate. Exactly. And what you're saying is don't be obsessed with that. Exactly. So then, if you had to teach what you feel is the truth to a 10-year-old, what is that? What is that idea, that nugget, that wisdom that you need to implant in your 10-year-old? Well, or I can redefine what you're saying, though I understand the essence, but let's redefine it. How about we don't do anything because we allow, we stay away, we open up the space, we keep our ego out. It's all what we need to do less of. The problem is we're so obsessed as if we're producing the next PhD concerto symphony, as if they are our next, you know, project that we can show to the world our trophy. That's the problem. So if we go after 
them to become conscious, that becomes the next obsession, right? I used to do this with my daughter. Will you meditate? I used to tell her, I was like, why are your eyes open? Breathe. And she was like, uh, okay, how do I breathe? I was like, just breathe. And every time she like squiggled or wiggled or like just wandered, I was like, breathe. So spiritual, right? <laughs> but we're mad. We are insane. If it's not this insanity, it's the next. And the flavor of today's insanity, at least in this room, will be let's make our children spiritual. That will be our new project. That's the next delusion. We cannot want anything from our children. So when I ask parents, what do you want for your child? They fall right into the trap. I just want my child to be happy. Every word there almost is deluded. First, I shouldn't feature. Already we've begun wrong. So therefore it's a precipitous fall into no man's land, into the gutter. Okay, so let's just excuse because you have to say something. You have to use something, use some pronoun attached to something. Then the next word, I want, want, want. You want? How can you want anything for your child? Your child does not belong to you. I know you're so seduced. You, the illusion was, but it came, it wrecked this body. <laughs> I can want some things. This child does belong to me, but that's another delusion of form. See, form deludes us. You know, form makes us believe it is, but it is not. It is the conduit to the formless. The child came to you to show you to detach from that which was inevitably already wrecked, right? It was already wrecked. Now we just have someone to blame. So I want happiness. Then I say, what's happiness? Who knows what happiness is? I told you, it's just another euphemism for success, which is only money, really, really. So let's not pretend. So I want my kid to be happy. All of it is wrong. You can never want anything for anybody else. And so, even when you want for yourself, you're going to go on the wrong path because if you want something, you're coming from lack. So the whole premise has to change. So I get what you're saying. And you know, it reminds me of that Khalil Gibran poem where he starts with your children do not belong to you. They come through you. But you also said this, you said the premise of a child is not to fulfill their parents' needs, but to become fully evolved, independent and unique beings, right? So how can we help them become fully evolved, independent and unique beings? Surely there is something we can do. <laughs> or is this just a total hands-off approach? Because <laughs> I'm a guy, I gotta fix things. <laughs> I gotta fix my 10-year-olds. I understand. I deeply empathize with your insanity. <laughs> I feel for you. But I think this is the challenge. This is why parenting is so genius and why we keep doing it. But we do it for the wrong reasons. We do it to glorify the ego. We forget that we're supposed to call the soul. But we keep having it, so no problem. One day we'll get it. But to stand on this exact agony of wanting to fix and do, but knowing they don't belong to you, have no jurisdiction beyond food and shelter and clothing and some basic values. That's it. So you're standing on the agony, right, of this very egoic call. Let me do to you. Please look what you've done to me. Let me make you give me something back. Please make me look good. The call of the ego is so strong from this child and they're so young and you're like, no one's looking. I'm alone with this child a lot. I can make anything out of this buddy, right? <laughs> so the call of the ego is so strong and you have to stand there in the highest spiritual calling and not fall for the call of the ego and rise into your own knowing. So you rise into your own knowing and you fall back into your own wholeness 
and radiate with that. Now do that. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's tough. It's tough. <laughs> That's hard, Be isn't it? Beautifully said. That's so, hard. So my 10-year-old Hayden was outside in the children's classes and at 6 p.m. I went to see him and I said, Hey, Hayden, you want to come sit in the front row on a beanbag and listen to one of the world's foremost parenting experts talk to me and teach me how not to fuck you up? <laughs> And he says, no, Dad, I'm going home. I'm like, damn it, fail. Yeah, he's like, it's already too late. <laughs> so let's talk about this. You and I both have Indian heritage. Right now, Asian parenting is a whole different species. On steroids, right? yes. What are your views on Asian parenting, on tiger moms, on that whole I'm not going to call them Asian parents. I have a lot of Asian parent clients who are very devoted. So let's just talk about the breed of this particular obsessive quality. Yeah, let's not give it a title, as all of them will leave me. Yeah? So we, in our part of the world, have our own idiosyncrasy, but let's not be fooled. Every part of the world has its own flavor. And the flavor is extreme hypervigilance, extreme domination, extreme molding, as if this person before you is not an intelligent being. But really, to have empathy is because these cultures have themselves been severed from their own innate intelligence. This is all we know how to do. You know, and look how good we are at spelling bees. It is the symbol of being cut off from feral intelligence and being doctored into very tailored regurgitation. I mean, if that's not the pure symbolism of what's being done to the parent, then what is? It's a tragedy. And you see it in the form of this overachieving and overzealous kind of parenting. But we need to have empathy for what the parent has gone through to really make headway, right? Easy to judge, but for true healing to take place, we have to understand where the parent is coming from. That's all they know. Automation, regurgitation, you know, tailoring, doctoring, moving forward in a very precise line. But how do you reconcile that with this quote from you? From day one as a parent, I decided I would focus only on effort. I hate when I use words like that, you know? I will only do certain things. My editor should have taken all those over-ambitious words out because now when I hear them 15 years later, I'm like cringing. But go ahead. Yeah. All right. Again, quoting you, most of us are so obsessed with performance, it kills the ability to enjoy effort. Yeah, exactly. So it's about understanding if the parent is rooted in the place in their soul that this is a journey and that the child has come many times before and will come many times henceforth because they're energy that can never be destroyed then you ease a little bit from the precipitous task to create, to mold, to fix, to hone, to master this child right now. And you fall back and you realize that this is the journey. Not only the journey of the child's, but the journey of your own evolution. So then effort is the journey, no? The performance is only the last little piece, and the performance is something declared by an external entity. So once you realize that the teacher or the professor who gave that grade albeit needing respect, needs to also get legitimate respect, not respect where the soul is abducted in obeisance to that. If you have your eye on the prize of the journey, then you'll minimize your own stress. You've unclawed and unclenched from these very minuscule moments that actually then become your life, right? It's like a woman who has a wrinkle, now that's become her life. Or if her boyfriend leaves her, that's become her life. In the same way, if the child gets a C grade, don't make it the life. Understand it's all the journey toward greater unfolding. So here's a practical question. If the child gets a C grade, we can be chill with that. 
But there are times when I come back as a dad, when my kid was seven and eight and nine, and I would ensure that I would spend half an hour to 45 minutes one-on-one daddy time with him, and we'd watch a documentary or we'd read an encyclopedia. Then when he turned nine and ten, he just told me he didn't want to do that, right? What he wants to do is maybe watch a movie on Netflix or play Minecraft with his friends. And I don't know if I'm doing the right thing. Should I really let him do that, or should I? You know, kind of pull him to play the chemistry set with me, or to read an encyclopedia with me. Am I doing something wrong? In a way, I'm kind of relieved that he wants to do his own stuff, because then I can do my own stuff. But I don't know what's right and what's wrong. Well, first, you know, since you're putting yourself out there so bravely, we'll use you as a little bit of an example. You know, when you said I spend time with my son, or when we spend time with our children. We're thinking it means that we're going to be together, spirit with spirit, just joining, just being, just chilling. But when you describe what you do with your son, it sounded very like effortful and purposeful. Chemistry said I heard. Then I heard what were the other reading things? an encyclopedia. Reading an encyclopedia. <laughs> and then what else? What was the third thing you said? Watching a documentary. Watching a documentary. I wonder why this kid. <laughs> oh God! I am so glad Hayden is not in the room. Thank God he went home. Yeah. Another thing I never let my child do is listen to my talks. <laughs> so if you're so good, why don't you just have one kid? Why not like ten? Because I said before, I only needed one to show me my insanity. My defenses are not that thick. I was ready to let it crumble. Oh, see, already making a mistake by two months old. Shop is closed. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so then walk us through the typical day of a parent, right? Like, what were you doing with your children as you got them dressed and fed them breakfast and took them to school? Was so, there anything unique or different that you did? No, I was a typical parent, completely mired in my ego, losing it every ten minutes, not knowing what I was doing, waiting for the child of my fantasy to show up. Every day, I said, "Today is the day, not the day that I'll show up, but the day that she is going to show up." And within ten minutes, when that didn't come true, my ego would unleash. So I did that for the first three, four years of my child's very formative years, and. Then I woke up. So please don't be thinking, you know, life in my house is some glory picnic along the banks of the Baltic Sea or something. It's not. It's a horror show because I messed up the first three years. I was unconscious. I didn't know that I was waiting for my child of my fantasies, and that was a wrong thing. I didn't tell me that yet. So a typical parent will struggle between the world of form. And doing things and getting things done, and these children who just are here to test your every particle of patience—they are engineered to not follow the world of form. And here we're taking them into the world of form, and they're kicking and screaming. So this is the battle. You walk that line every single day to stay in formless, holding on to it with your dear life, and every two minutes you're being challenged by this child who just doesn't want to enter the world of form. So what do you do? It's the art of practicing mindfulness in the moment. They are your teachers. They're here to show you. Look how attached you are to the dress that I just vomited on. Why are you so attached? Look how attached you are that I eat every piece of the beautiful scrambled egg you just made me. Why are you so attached, Mom? I don't want it anymore. Well, I just took 10 minutes to make it. Why are you so attached? <laughs> right? So they're here to show you every day why we're so attached. So if you can't bow down to that and see the joy in that, then you're going to be manic and obsessed. 
You have to see the beauty of what they're doing for you. They're here to lambast your ego into smithereens. For that, they need to be thanked. And they're waiting for their thanks. It's funny, I see the kids in the front row nodding their head. So let's say you have a seven-year-old child. You're about to ship him off to school, but he refuses to eat breakfast. The bus is here. You know if he doesn't finish his breakfast, he's going to be starving a couple of hours down the clock. What do you do? Do you just let him board the bus hungry? Wow, yes. This really I have done. Because at some point you realize, listen, child, if you don't want to eat and you want to hear your stomach rumble and you like that music, how can I intervene? How can I interfere between you and your stomach? So I'm taking myself out of the equation and I've given many a parent to take breakfast, you know, the most important meal of the day. When our children are sleeping, we are the best parents. So we make the best breakfast because we've not yet been reminded that the child of our fantasy is not waking up. So every day it's reset. We press the reset button into delusion. Every day we're like, ah, oh, I will be the parent of my fantasy and they will wake up as the children of my fantasy. So we put on the apron. This is what we mothers do. Fathers, they gave it up a long time ago. But you see, in all fairness, we mothers, the body was wrecked. We have to get some payback. We gave up the career. We need a payback. We are not interested in the husband who now looks just like the children. So we need a payback. We need some payback. So we put on the apron and we get out our chef's, you know, hands and spirit. And then we conjure up a breakfast. And then the children wake up. I have made many a parent admit that this fantasy of every morning starting fresh and new, this romance needs to end. So throw the breakfast out and there is no more the most important meal of the day. So now I want to pursue some slightly edgier questions. About an hour ago on stage here, you said, anything that separates you from oneness is a delusion. And you went on to say, saying that I'm an Indian or I'm an Estonian, that is a delusion. Okay, but how do we as parents then help our kids understand our culture, understand their national identity, understand their heritage? Are you saying that that's something we should avoid as well? Well, you know, when you teach your children to be zealot attachers to an identity, your national identity, think of what we're doing, no? I mean, yeah, I want my kid to be proud of my identity, but this is a new consciousness we're stepping into. That was the old way. The new consciousness is that we are of one identity. Yes, now with the way the internet has broken down the walls, now we're one, it's clear. So raise your children with that consciousness. So when my daughter was being raised in America, but I'm from one country, her father's from another country, the question of mom, who am I? And I didn't raise her to follow a particular religion or a particular way. She's basically really confused right now. <laughs> I said to just tell the people in the form world, you say your country A and your country B and your country C and none. She's very confused. <laughs> but one day it will all coalesce, you see, because she's in the world of duality. So it doesn't make sense. But one day it'll all make sense. So what I'm saying, the best answer would be, yes, you are of this, but you're not only this. And certainly this doesn't define you. So you're this and you're all that you want to be and you can't see it. Beautiful. So now, let's ask an edgier question. Do we have a right as parents then to raise our kid in our religion? Because in many religions of the world, 
like evangelical Christians or Muslim or Hindu or Hindu, yeah. you have to raise your kid in your religion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What are your views on that? Is that bad? Is that something we as a human species should stop? Okay, so the answer is complex, right? And this is such a sensitive topic, so I'll be very gentle with your egos, which are very attached. So all I will ask you is to challenge yourself to really see what you're doing when you ask your children to follow any way, but certainly a way to believe something about the world, a cosmological viewpoint. So religion, in essence, may teach your children to look outward. It may teach your children that if they follow a certain set of very dualistic principles, good, bad, heaven, hell, inside, outside, evil, not evil, then perhaps if you're very, very good and lucky, you may attain salvation from the outside. Most religions are predicated on inner lack, on inner evil, really, that you need to be redeemed, on inner impoverishment. So teach your children all you want, but know what you're teaching them when you teach them that they need to redeem, they need to be saved, they need something from the outside to create salvation. So the taintedness is enormous, yes? You're teaching them you're tainted until, if, only, when, a whole list of things till eternity are followed, then maybe you may reach the pearly gates of your bliss. This is a dangerous thing to teach, but it is the way of the mainstream. And it is mired in, to me, a separatist viewpoint, almost oppressive. But it's so indoctrinated in us that people may not even be able to hear that it's not against the religion that I speak. It's against you teaching yourself and your children that you don't have and possess and own inner divinity within you. Amazing. Firstly, thank you for being bold enough to say something like that. So what then about cultural rituals? Growing up in a Hindu family, I had to go through certain rituals which I just could not stand, but I had to do it anyway because I would otherwise disappoint my grandparents. So my parents made me do it. And when I had children, they went through certain Orthodox Christian rituals. Again, not to disappoint the grandparents, so my wife and I were cool. So we had our kids baptized and so on. Is that something that we should continue? Well, just know what you're doing. You're already saying that you did it because of fear, puppeteered by the strings of unconscious ancestors. You're already entering it completely inauthentic, lying and smiling and telling your child, smile, smile, this is the happiest day of your life, or something like that. So it's okay if you're doing it, just know the game you're playing then. Don't pretend they are going to be more holy tomorrow, or you're holy because you did that. So just know what you're doing. If you're doing it because your grandma's gonna kill me, okay, then do it, and make her pay for it. But know why you're doing it. <laughs> Don't pretend. Do it all. Do all the form-based worlds. I send my daughter to a very typical public school because I'm not paying for a glorified public school called private school. No, and I'm not homeschooling. I'm not that dedicated. So I know what I'm doing to my child. I'm like, go child. 
be done unto you what has been done unto all of us. <laughs> so what then about restrictions? How do we as parents know what to restrict our children from? And I'm talking about, you know, too much time on an iPad, too much time watching television, age-appropriate content on the internet. Aren't there certain things that we need to protect our children from? Yes, 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 absolutely. But it's going to be an uphill battle because mainstream will pull at you and your children are now raised by mainstream. So the antidote needs to be created. So rather going against, which is obviously for them and us, delectable mana from heaven, you know, look at all of us with our phones, right? You know, you're licking it at night, you know, thank you, I have you. It's your bedfellow. So we know the addiction and we know it's seduction. So instead of fighting that, try to create the antidote, I say. Now, does that mean we don't have limitations with boys and gaming and girls on social media for hours ad nauseum at inappropriate ages? Yes, I'm trying to do a campaign of no screens till teens because I am against it, but to be against anything in resistance is a failing cause, I realize. So we can educate and we can teach and we can do the best we can, but the most effective way, I think, is to do its antidote. And the antidote to that is human personal connection. So yes, your kid will be on the screen because it's so seductive, but then we challenge ourselves to seduce our children back into the embrace of our connection. And that takes a lot of work and that takes you being present, right? We all use the internet and the screens as babysitters. We do for our own selves. So this is the challenge. You know, we're making the screens and technology the enemy. Now it is. But to fight it as if it has a hold on you means to lose your power. It is dangerous what's happening. It is unhealthy for our children because what's happening is that every hour on a screen is every hour away from interpersonal, alive, engaged human connection. So create the antidote then or create the boundary. Mm -hmm. So I want to start asking you a couple of questions that came from our audience. So let me first start with the question from Dr. Judy Gianni. Now, Judy said, how can I encourage my teen, who's almost 14, to develop habits of taking care of her belongings and to respect common areas, not leaving her stuff all over the place because nagging is not working? You know, these are the form-based anxieties that we get caught up in. I use the example of, you know, when your child comes home with a backpack and then what do they do with the backpack? They just throw it. First fight starts right there as if this backpack is going to swallow us, right? So I had a whole conversation with the backpack. You see, we forget our children have been at school all day with very annoying authoritative adults who are mostly caught up in the unconsciousness of a very systematized oppression themselves. So they come home and we're like, put the back, wait, wait, wait. You have five minutes to eat. And then we're going for soccer. And then we're going for volleyball. And then by the way, how are you? You know, I love you so much. So. I had to have a conversation with the backpack as a symbol of things because we expect our children to be a little bit of Mother Teresa and a little bit of Michael Phelps and a little bit of some OCD fastidious crazy person and clean up as they go like a swiper, you know, their own little swiper. They walk, swipe, walk, swipe. This is what we wanted. So when we see the chaos, it reflects the inner chaos, yes? And we're like, no, we just want to teach our children to be neat and tidy. Yes, of course you can teach, but the way we react is because it reflects the inner chaos and we can't stand feeling helpless in the face of this walking, talking tsunami, right? So we have to then become one with the mess, 
Because mess is the hallmark, first of life, and then definitely of children, definitely if you had more than one. So marry the mess. So I began talking to the backpack. You're not going to kill me, are you? You're not going to swallow me, are you? You're just inanimate. But then why do I have such a reaction? Why do I care so much if you're here or there? Why can't I marry you? Why can't I stay in oneness, even though the symmetry of my house right now is a little bit askew? <laughs> so I had to become one with the backpack. And then the socks, then the unpottied potty, and you know, so on and so forth. This is why children come to us. Become one with what is and then teach. We do it the other way around. We're not with the oneness of the isness and then we're just losing it all the time. So you get to decide, do I want to do this every day? Because you're doing this every day, aren't you? Every day you're saying, say thank you, say please, wipe your nose, clean the pot. Every day. So don't you hear yourself? I hear myself every day. I can't stop. It just comes out. So at some point you go, I have to wake up. And what is the sacred lesson here? There must be some sacred lesson. And the sacred lesson is to not be so attached to the form of it. Go and hug your kid, go and play with them, go and lie down with them and stop obsessing with the minutiae of the form. But this is what we do. We always forget. Beautifully said. Now, this question comes from Mahindra Pagiriya, who is watching us online. Now, he said, how do I deal with this scenario? My kid is failing at exams. What is the thing I need to do as a parent to at least ensure that my child isn't blowing away his education? These are such extreme examples and parents do this to the therapist. It's not fair. You know, they come at the end of the epic war and they're like, come fix it. And the answer is not simple. You know, it's being portrayed as so precipitous. We parents do this, you know, because we have to make our case. I only beat him black and blue because he was failing every <laughs> test, right? So we're already, you see the case is being made. He is failing everything. So the parent is trying to gain support. They want an answer from you which says, what? Your kid is so bad. Your kid is failing everything. And they want to transfer, not this guy, this is an example. They want you to feel what they're feeling inside, which is fear desperation because this parent like all of us would looks forward and all we see is jail and homelessness so this is what this parent is feeling in the moment and they want us they're recruiting us to feel this and we all feel it as a therapist i have gotten seduced you know i'm like let me get your kid here let me fix your kid I forget because the parent does such a good job at making me forget and making me believe this kid is a criminal. And then the kid comes and then if I had to hear the kid's side of the story, right, you'd say something so different, correct? You'd say first and foremost, I'm not failing at everything. I can get ready on my own, okay? You know, the kid would have a different essay because the kid has a different narrative. So I can't fall into this fear and resistance. I have to understand more. And what I would tell every parent is don't get trapped because the seduction is always fear and resistance. This is the design. Unless your kid is perfect, which no kid is, right? What do parents expect? Then the default is fear and resistance. So you're falling into the trap. It's called failed grades today. Tomorrow it'll be called 10 extra pounds. The next day it'll be called a busted tire. Next day it'll be called an irate boss. It doesn't matter, I said. It's the schism with a thousand different faces. 
But the hero has thousand different faces too. So pull out the hero, go, oh, I don't look at this as failure. I look at this as discovery and transform it, transmute it. Who has the power to transform the failures of life? You do. Same with your children. But if you foresee and foretell, because you think you're psychic, every parent does, then there's only one path, flipping burgers on the side of the street and peddling drugs. That's where we all go. We all go there. We're the same. The fear is so disastrously abducting that it really massacres us. So I can't fall into fear because if I did, every step is the pothole of fear. So you get to choose every moment. Now, do I make this take me into fear because it's legitimate fear? Look, every grade is C. Or do I not buy into this and see the unmanifested? It takes a lot, but that's why our children come to us. And those children who fail in particularly take us to the opportunity, to the doorway, we have to walk through it, of a higher understanding. Thank you. So, speaking of grades, speaking of schooling, what do you think are the things that human society across the world has to change or evolve in terms of our education systems? So, just to align with what I've been saying, the current paradigm is all form-based. It's all literal, it's all quantified, it's all discrete and compartmentalized, and every child is meant to be all things at all times. That's all form, material, very material world. So we have to introduce the nuance of the spiritual, of the formless, teaching our children that we do this so we can read and write, but then a whole host of other potential is awaiting. And even the spark of that in every child, even in the most rigorous math class, but you tell the child, you know, this is only math, but it's not going to really make you survive when you're in an emotional pit. This is just math. So always reminding the child that this is just for this moment, but the true essence of life is something else that they need to cultivate. And if the school can create the space for the cultivation of inner connection, for the child to be able to sit in solitude, to confine the child to themselves without a distraction, that is the gift to the child, to teach them that all of this is a window dressing, all of this is an icing, it's an accoutrement, but the real core is your connection with yourself. So discover that, get an A grade for that. Thank you. One of the things that you've written about is your belief that disciplining a child never works. Tell us more about that. So the archaic model of discipline, which is so touted as a parenting mainstay, it's a fundamental premise of good parenting. How do you discipline your child? There are books written on it, you know, and no one stops to question, wow, we never say, how do you discipline your husband or your wife? Or how do you discipline your boss? Or how do you discipline your friend? You know why? Because you can't discipline, you dare discipline your best friend if she shows up late for your birthday or your partner. You can't. So the very belief that you can discipline these children is because they're young and pliable and they're naive and they're innocent and they're trusting. They don't yet know that this is just laziness on your part. Because what is discipline really? It's everything menacing, everything separating the union between parent and child. It castigates one as bad, yes. You must castigate one as bad in the movie if you have to discipline. You see, to discipline your child, you have to set up a whole movie. The reel has to be very predictable. It starts with castigation of the child as evil. No responsibility of the parental self. Next, the parent believes in the mythology that they're here to control and dominate. 
They're here with the mythology that the child is here to follow. The child is lesser than. You see, a lot of things have to be in place in order to take that stick out or to take something out that is going to punish this child. So the parent is to believe lots of things. One, that the child is bad. Second, that the parent needs to have utter supreme tyrannical control. They'll never say it, but that's what they believe. Number three, that they are greater than, the children are lesser than. Number four, it is their right it is their right to, in any way, shape, or form, get their message instilled in the child, be it with a stick or a feather. And then the parent, who is obviously in an irate state of mind, is going to choose the easiest, laziest way out, which is to pick up the stick. So you believe you're teaching your child, and then you couch it as that because all the books tell you, of course, go ahead and do that. You can take it away. You can send them to timeout, the conscious timeout, it's called now, with a cushion and some music. So <laughs> what it is really is your inability, and every parent knows this, because a child has the capacity to pull our parental authoritative pants down <laughs> and leave us standing there helpless, right? And we're like, I didn't do this to once again recreate helplessness in my body. My whole life I've been beaten down and buckled about by other authority figures, and now my child refuses to bend to my will. So what's happening before you want to discipline? That's what I try to target. What's happening before the impulse to discipline is deep helplessness, right? That little person has managed to make you feel right so small and you're like i have felt so small for all my life and now you are recreating that in me and this book has told me that i don't need to stand for it anymore so the wrath of your little child against all the authority figures in your life now comes out at this person how many of you here can relate to that so the next question is on value systems to what extent should we teach our kids our values versus maybe helping them find their own values? Where's the balance there? Whenever we say teach our children values, that's where it gets scary for me. And then you said systems, right? Because those are the right words to say. It's a value system. So understand it's systematic. A system is a system. So just be aware of what it is. So when I hear, you know, how do you teach your child a value system? To me, that it's the right question. But the implication that we will take home is that we have to do something again. We have to embody the value system. And our child has every right to take it or leave it. So in every moment, we embody it. And then the child has the choice. So let's take the most basic dualistic value system of good and bad. You're being good. You're sharing your clothes. You're sharing your shoes. You're sharing your time and space. But your child has decided to not follow your value system of sharing. And so are they bad? This is where you begin to see the quality that's flim-flammy about let's teach our children our value system. Because then to teach them to be good, now you bring out discipline. So be careful, because if you're here to teach, then you're here to teach the level of consciousness your child has and not punish them for the one that they don't yet, right? So in the name of teaching a value system, you then pull out anything. Now it's a value system. You know, this is not grades or money. This is our deep value system. Those rituals were a value system. Mm -hmm. And you're seeing how much value that system had. Right. 
<laughs> so as a parent, I've sometimes found myself in these types of situations. Kids today have access to so much information, but a result of that is that they have access to so much unrestricted information flow. In my book, I wrote about this funny incident where I was driving in a car with my 10-year-old, and the song came on the radio, and it was Baby Got Back. And there was a line in that song that said, my anaconda don't want none unless you've got buns hung. And so my 10-year-old, I think he was seven at that point, said, Dad, what is this song about? And so I lied to him, like all good fathers would right, do. Right. And I said, it's about a snake that really loves bread. <laughs> and then he paused for a while. And 30 seconds later, he says, someday when I grow up, I want to write a song about a snake with healthier eating habits. <laughs> but what do you do in those situations? You do what you do. You don't say, you know what the song is really about, child, let me tell you. No, you do it because you're trying to titrate the influx of information according to the level of great maturity that children have. You know, so for many years, I told my daughter that chocolate cakes were very spicy. I wouldn't eat them. So lying, lying to it's our kids every lying. now and then is okay. It's lying, it's being creative <laughs> in the moment. And besides, did we tie up their hands? I said, I'm going to tie up your hands, don't try it. She chose to listen, to follow, so... No, listen, of course I say not to lie, you know, but in the moment, you have to be wise to the level of consciousness of your child, yes? So when parents say to me, you know, I believe in honesty and transparency, shouldn't I tell my child about my abusive past or did all sorts of drugs? Again, so I say, no, unless their consciousness can handle it. In the name of honesty and transparency, don't overburden your child for a level of the world that they're not ready to appetize. Thank you. So in the final 10 minutes we have, what would be some of the biggest tips you have for people over here on how they can move more into conscious parenting? I think to really, you know, drop all longing for it to be any different than what is showing up in the moment. So drop that fantasy, drop the expectation, this is the child you got, this is the parent you are, this is the damage done. It is, and it's not damage as in something that is irrevocable, it's just the unconsciousness, the force and the gale of your unconsciousness. So don't look at it as something that is irrefutable, just look at it as is. And now we begin this moment again. But in each moment, you endeavor to come clean. What does that mean? To come with eyes unveiled, to come with eyes clear. What does that mean? Where you see the person before you, even your own self, as you really are, without the imposition of how it should be, yes? So you take away the projection, you know, Projection is the greatest tyrant, really, the psychological enemy of ourselves. We project onto the other who we want them to be. We hear things that we are hearing in our own melodies that don't even exist. So to clear up the screen, to clear up the veil, to dust off the window shades and to really look out at the person, the soul, the spirit before you, as they are, without your desire for it to be anything else. If there's any lesson that I keep learning and forgetting, it's this is the person, this is the life, this is the moment, this is mine, here to teach me, how can I wake up? I can't look anywhere else. The lane you're in is the lane you're meant to be. So walk that and then you can change. 
But first recognize your moment. Own it fully. Stop divorcing yourself in the hope that the next person or the next you will create a better reality. Don't divorce from yourself. It's here and the only reality that you need to have. In this reality, you will burst forth. Thank you, Shafali. What was the biggest lesson you learned as a parent? Was when I had a child, a parent, the real parent, when I was in my 30s already and I had been a meditator and I was a PhD already in clinical, on my way to becoming a PhD in clinical psychology, I thought I was going to escape the treachery of the ego. For sure, I've done so much work on myself. And when I had the child, I realized there is no preparing for this. And the epiphany that this is actually the greatest teacher, the child-parent relationship, because every moment is unknown in life, but there you see it in the parent-child dynamic. Because children, in their capacity to be so intransient, to be so impermanent, these beings that just don't stay loyal to who they need to be and who they were yesterday, they're constantly asking you to shape-shift, to form-shift, to let go, to detach, moment after moment, just when you think, ah, I know who my kid is, there's somebody else. So they teach you, they are the gurus of teaching you how to live in the present moment. They teach you the essence of life itself. So this is complete detached, full compassion, full heart, moment, in the moment, presenceful living that you can ever have, the one you have with your child. Thank you, Pali. It's just such a wealth of wisdom in what you're sharing with us today. Now, was there any question, a really profound, a deep, deep one. difficult, edgy <laughs> question? Thank you very much. It was very, very interesting. My question is about, you talk a lot about how we're supposed to react, but we're a model ourselves, meaning that everything we do, everything we've done, our children are seeing. So what we're telling our children, how we're trying to educate them and everything, Everything we're saying is one, but what we've done that they know, you were talking earlier about religion, the fact that we're part of a religion, even if we don't impose it, but that model, how do we detach that? For example, marriage, that might be something that's part of religion, okay? So how do you detach that from the education you're trying to give, which is in itself maybe different from what you would want for your kid than you, what you had yourself? So you're asking, how do you become a renegade and revolutionize your ways when you've already conformed? Yeah, something like that? Well, you begin now. That's the best way to teach your kid, that I was such a fool. I totally bought into all these institutions. I was a slave. Now, you're right that they've watched you be the slave, and now you've woken up. So you're right, they may follow that way, but at least you can say, okay, I'm telling you, that wasn't something that I'm proud of, or it's not something to be so romanticized. But at the end of the day, it's okay if they also go through their own enslavement, it's okay, because this is the way of it. So you may have exited in freedom, and they don't believe it yet because they saw you in conformity, and they're like, no, now you've already brainwashed me. I'm already conditioned, so I'm going to do it the old way. And you're like, no, 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 I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Please trust me. Learn from me. 
but we all have to learn in our own way. So the way to liberation is enslavement. So it's okay. You came to liberation from enslavement. Enslavement of the mind, yes? So if your child now walks down the path, which I know, for example, my child will, because I've been so out there that my lesson will be that she will be so in there. And it's okay though, because I too was in there till I left it. So too will she. So there's no fear. If they join you in the liberation, wow, they really short-circuited their way into freedom. If they're like, no, I want to learn the hard way and I'm not going to learn from you. Okay, go ahead. We'll take one more question. Hi. Hi. Thank you, Dr. Shivali. So this is Sam. He's a year and a half. And sometimes I feel like he's carrying my shame. My job is to get out of his way. But unconsciously, I feel like he's carrying some of my crap. Can you tell us a little bit about he's that? Not. He's not yet. I mean, you may be putting it by seeing in him you. So if you're seeing him through eyes of shame, he will start seeing himself through eyes of shame. He's not carrying anything wittingly. You're reflecting to him either his inner grandeur or his inner shame. Only from what you feel. We can only shine through our eyes what is inside here. The child is forever grand and forever worthy. But when they look at us, reflecting through our eyes, our inner shame, they feel the schism starting. And they go, but I'm okay. I didn't do something so bad. Why are you yelling at me like that? I remember the look on my daughter's face when she was a year and a half to two, when I was losing it. She was just looking at me like, why are you possessed? Because I was. So that look is from your inner schism that you're now projecting onto him and now you're believing he's carrying it, so you're perpetuating it. He doesn't want it. He's very easily going to give it up at this age. So you work on your inner wholeness and keep healing your own inner child and just do that work when you're in his presence and not even look at him and he will flower into his wholeness or who he's meant to be. So this is coming up for you because it's inside you. Thank you. Thank you, Shpali. As we wrap up, firstly, thank you for coming thank all you. the way here. So Shapali, any final words for the audience? Vision, what you've created, I know you hear it all the time, but this is the vanguard. This is the precipice of the new consciousness that's going to emerge. So thank you, Shapali. Please give her a big round of applause. Thank you. And if you enjoyed that talk, one of the things I encourage you to look into is Mind Valley University City Campus. This is the place where that talk was given. This is a project that my team and I do where thousands of people move to a city for one month every year in the summer. And we turn that city into a massive campus with the most incredible social events, with masterminds, with talks from world-class teachers. You can check it out on mindvalley.com forward slash city campus. 
I think it's something that you're really going to enjoy. The next campus is happening in Pula, Croatia from around the last week of June to the third week of July. We're expecting close to 1,500 people there and some of the world's most incredible teachers. And there are classes for your kids, your teens, and for you. So check it out. I can't wait to meet you in Pula if you decide to come. And I can tell you that it is one of the highest rated events in the entire Mind Valley ecosystem. Thank you for being a listener on the Mind Valley podcast. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and mention Shafali so she knows that you appreciated her wisdom. Thank you, guys. I'll see you next week. Vishen Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast.